This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Such Sights to Show, a all things Clive Barker podcast. I am Joe Lipsit, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Brian Christopher. Hi, Brian. Hey, Joe. You ready? I got my bags packed. Let's go to Midian, shall we? Oh, boy. Yeah, folks, we are embarking on the journey to Midian. This is the first of what will undoubtedly be several different episodes tackling <laughs> Nightbreed in all of its various formats. But uh, Brian, I think we're going to stay in the safe spot today. We're just going to be talking about Cabal as well as the theatrical cut of Mr. Clive Barker's film adaptation, Nightbreed. Give ourselves a solid foundation. Yes, although I will confess, if you are a fellow Canadian and listening to this, good effing luck trying to find (laughs) this theatrical cut because it is director's cut all the way as far as the eye can see so weird like I, I i wonder why it's so difficult to find uh because yeah i think it was just peacock in the u.s just had the theatrical cut it was surprisingly easy to find yeah i i wonder if it was just oh this is the preferred version so we're going to make this one available but yeah folks in case you are trying to watch along and follow the conversation we're talking about the hour and 42 minute cut of the film not the two-hour cut, which would be the director's cut, and not the three-hour cut, which would be the cabal cut. Yeah, it seems murky, too, in terms of, because I've I've heard the cabal cut can be anywhere up to three, three and a half hours. Mm-hmm. I've heard it's two and a half hours by some sources. It, it just seems like finding the different versions of this is as tricky as finding Midian itself. Mm. <laughs> well said, Brian. <laughs> So why don't we begin with Cabal, the book. We're not going to be talking about the original print of this, which of course included several shorts from Books of Blood. We're just going to be talking about Cabal, the novella, which is dedicated to Boone and his struggle to get away from Decker, his psychiatrist, who is secretly a serial killer and pinning all the murders on him. And yes, the Nightbreed themselves, who are of course these underground fantastical creatures who hide away from the human race. And I would say this this pushes the boundaries of what I would consider a novella. Like this is I the, know. The right? the copy I had was a, a solid two hundred pages, and that's just straight up novel territory for me. Uh-huh. I I found a quote from Clive Barker, I believe when he first published this in 1988, and he was experimenting with the form, which I think is why it gets called a novella, because mm. he was coming off of books that were like 700 pages. So to him, I think this felt quite brief. <laughs> this is tapas for, right. for Clive Barker. This is not family style <laughs> meal that he's used to delivering. But I think this was I, I love the length of this. I love mm-hmm. this. I'll just come out front and say I love this book. I really enjoyed Ooh. this. Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. I think you and I are going to have a couple of tension points then because I, much like the movie, admire this more than I actually like it. Interesting. Okay. So like you appreciate what it's doing, but it's not necessarily your cup of tea. Yeah. I think I messaged you about halfway through and I said, 
Brian, I'm just finding this really repetitive in a cyclical fashion. And I think you reassured me by saying something along the lines of, suck it up, bitch. That's the point. But <laughs> there were times where I just felt in the in the reading, it was, okay, we're going to Calgary, and then we're going to Sheerneck, and then we're going to Midian, and then we're coming back, and we're going to the gravesite, and then we're going to the restaurant. And it it felt like we were hitting a lot of the same plot points over and over again. And sometimes that just felt like the story wasn't advancing in the way that I was hoping for. Well, I remember you saying something along the lines of it seemed to like bounce back and forth. Yes. And yeah, I think that was really the 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 point that for me uh, struck as, as being part of the point of the, the book. Because for me, duality is like the biggest theme that runs through this story. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of looking at it through through your experience in terms of like it bounces back from uh, the small town back to Midian, back to the small town and, and kind of bounces back and forth. There's a lot of like this dichotomy between the veneer or the what people see on the outside and mm-hmm. what people know of themselves or think of themselves on the inside. Ah, yes. You mean the exterior facade versus who we truly are? Yes. Yeah. And and how uh, I, I think there's an interesting conversation here about how for a lot of people that it causes initial conflict, mm-hmm. but people are better able to embrace themselves where they realize that doesn't need to be necessarily a conflict, but something you can embrace. Um, right. And so like, I think the obvious thing there is Boone, who he thinks of himself as this this killer this this murderer mm-hmm. because of the things that that decker is putting him through and the way he's being manipulated by decker uh because all of these things that he thinks are acts that he's committed are actually things that decker is doing right so he thinks he's a killer and he thinks he's a monster so that is why when he learns about this like land of monsters in midian he's intrigued as maybe this is a place i can finally fit in Mm-hmm. and then like the the tension there is that when he finally gets there the the first night breed he encounters is like no i i can smell you you're you're just meat you are not mm-hmm. a monster you have not done any of these things that you think you've done right but he still becomes a monster he gets bit by one of the the night breed and like he has to kind of like when he then realizes like what actually being a monster is that causes more conflict and, and more kind of like attention within him. But it's only when he can kind of reconcile these seemingly conflicting elements of himself that he gets to a point where he can be like comfortable and be his full self. Right. And of course, as we proceed through the novella, we learn that the Nightbreed even though they describe themselves as monsters, are actually just kind of weird missing links that have been hunted nearly to the point of extinction. And they're, of course, not actually monsters. It's human beings who are the monsters, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we've got a bunch of Canadian Alberta rednecks who decide, oh, there are weird things living about an hour north of us. We need to go and commit genocide against them even though they have literally done nothing to us. So uh-huh. uh, I don't think it's a very subtle metaphor, particularly <laughs> when it comes to the night breed as a whole. I more prefer some of the subtleties within Boone's own experience where 
he thinks that he's a serial killer and then he realizes he's just a man and then he realizes no he actually is a nightbreed because he was bitten by Peliquin and then he becomes Cabal by the end of this book where he is now almost he's almost like a religious Moses figure to these yeah. night creatures where he now needs to lead them to find their new home. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think that the, the night breed in this are kind of the same, the way like zombies are in zombie stories where mm -hmm. they're not really right. what the story is about. You know, they are an element and a plot mechanism or a way to explore what the 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 main characters are are conflicted with and and kind of what they're they're navigating right i agree for the book and then i disagree when we get to the film and i could see that and i think that's you know when you when you start getting into what's going to make something more mm -hmm. uh cinematically uh, not palatable, but attractive or, you know, what's going to yes. put butts in the seats. Like you need to put, <laughs> I think more of an emphasis on, on these monsters, um, than, than you would be able to get away with in a quote unquote novella. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm curious, how do you read the relationship between Boone and Narcisse? Because Narcisse in a way is our guide, right? So Boone has been dreaming of Midian. He's been talking about it to Decker in their therapy sessions, but he doesn't even know if it's really real until he gets into trouble. He meets Narcisse, who believes that he is being tested because he wants to get to Midian. And it's only through this character and kind of through this character's death and rebirth that were really brought into Midian proper. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I, I guess Narcisse is kind of the, the catalyst for Boone. Like he mm -hmm. is, uh, you could almost kind of rename him plot device because he is <laughs> like, he's, he is how Boone really gets connected with the night breed. Uh, and right. and I, I think it's a little unfair. Like, you know, I'm, uh, simplifying for the bit in terms of like, yeah, it's fun to you know throw throw a little shade at Narcisse, uh, but I do think he is he's more than a plot device. He kind of starts that way, but they do a mm -hmm. good job at making him an integral part of Boone's group, you know. And right. uh, I think that Boone is kind of exploring, and there's a discussion I think to be had about the family you make. Uh, and I think mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that going on because Boone has Lori, you know, um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the conflict in their relationship, but oh, Lori, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then like within, within the night breed, like he doesn't necessarily connect or make like solid relationships with a lot of people in that community, but Narcisse mm -hmm. he does. Yeah, I mean, going off of your doubling piece, I would almost argue that Narcisse is the thing that pulls him back or tries to keep him in the Nightbreed, whereas Lori is the person who pulls him back and tries to keep him in the human world. Yeah, yeah. And you could, like, you know, it, it's hard to do any kind of a Clive Barker interpretation without bringing in queer elements. Uh -huh. uh, so, you know, here we have that idea of the, the push and pull for... You know, maybe the the conflict of bisexuality, I where was say, you yeah. know, where mm -hmm. kind of the heteronormative folks are trying to pull you back towards them, the the gay community is trying to pull you back towards them, as we famously do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and kind of like living in that that binary that that I think still very much existed mm -hmm. in especially in the late eighties where, yep. you know, I know as a kid, when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, like the idea of, of bi and, and pansexual, you know, 
maybe I've heard of bisexuality at this point. Never heard the the phrase pansexual until I was an adult. No. So it's kind of like you had to pick a team, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Or, you know, bisexuality, probably even into the 2000s, was always framed as a stepping stone towards either being gay or being straight. It was like, make up your mind, shit yeah. or get off the pot kind of thing. Yeah. And of course, now we recognize sexuality is way more fluid than that. And we never should be so binary. But this book definitely has those kinds of evocations because it's hard to deny that even though this book is far less sexual than something like the hellbound heart there's still a relative through line of sexuality and even like casting a line in with your lot like who do you want to spend time with who do you want to be around who are your people Mm -hmm. and you got to pick one like you can't do both no uh and that's i think that's definitely a push and pull throughout this for Boone. Like you either need to be part of the night breed or you need to be part of the human world. You can't do both or it's going to be disastrous, mm-hmm. uh, especially for the people of, of night breed, which, you know, if, again, if we're looking at that through the lens of like a queer allegory, like, yeah, it's, you kind of need to, and again, we're talking, you know, mid late eighties, uh, you need that protective bubble of, mm-hmm. of your people because, intolerance will come for you yes yeah and and in this case you know that was the result he brings intolerance crashing down on on these uh poor people's heads you know in the Mm -hmm. form of captain uh eagerman (laughs) do you uh how do you pronounce his name because i do feel like you know you could pronounce that as eagerman or eagerman but i guess looking looking at it through the lens of like eagerman like Mm. if we're looking at like that sounds like eager man like eager man yeah. yeah if 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 he is anything he is an eager man oh boy this guy what a grade a fucking asshole <laughs> i think that's the other weird thing that i find about this book slash novella is that even though it is relatively brief we are packing so many characters into this mm-hmm. and some of them come into the plot quite late like this guy you know he's not in the entire first half and then all of a sudden he becomes this huge important figure that is arguably going to determine whether any of these nightbreed live or die because he is the one who is rallying the townspeople and he wants mass extermination and in some ways i think it's really admirable how well barker can just fold in these new people and make them proper characters i know exactly who this guy is even though i don't know much about him and yet at the same time part of me feels like the book is just so overstuffed it never surprised me to learn that barker always had grander ambitions and plans like this is a world Mm -hmm. and there are so many other stories to be told But I feel like you can tell, like, we're really pushing the limits of, okay, I'm giving you a story, but this is a taster. This is an introduction. Hmm. I definitely get, you know, he's he's leaving this open for more stories to be told. I Mm -hmm. didn't find myself being dissatisfied with it as its own story, though. You know, I I didn't I didn't necessarily feel like because there have definitely been times where you know and honestly the 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 hellraiser remake i think is a good example mm. where it's like this this <laughs> took a really long time to actually set up a good story right and then i want the story that's going to come oops there's no story to come because yeah. it's a one and done yeah yeah you know he leaves things open 
at the end of, of this story. And, you mm-hmm. know, we'll talk a little bit later. He definitely does the same thing in the movie because he had, yeah, yeah. he had capital P plans for that. Oh, um, but yeah, it, it didn't leave me feeling like I've just only seen the first act of the story. Like there is more that he could tell, but mm-hmm. for me as a standalone story, it was still really satisfying. Yeah. It's very properly the first book in what could be a saga of books or a trilogy or something like that but it does have a beginning and an end Mm -hmm. Uh, you know whether you're left wanting more i think is how much you invest of yourself in this world how much you like boone how much you like the night breed how much more do you want to learn about their situation but you're right i would say this is a relatively successful standalone story yeah, you could you could almost call it like this is the Decker arc. You know, this is this right. is the the Decker story and and kind of you know Boone's origin tale. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Decker because even though my feelings are much stronger in the film, there's still often an element where I am attracted to the Decker part of this story maybe even a little bit more than I'm attracted to the Boone side. And I think it's because Boone is actually trying to figure himself out. In some ways, he's almost an incomplete character. That's what the book is about, him finding realization of who he truly is. Whereas Decker is so certain of who he is. But there's something delicious about him and the mask and the serial murders. And I know it's not what Clive Barker really wanted to explore, but I can't help it. Yeah, and it's it's almost the villainous extreme end of like where Boone could have wound up had he not yeah. become Cabal. Because mm-hmm. this is someone who, if we're if we're talking about that duality theme, he is two different people essentially. Mm-hmm. There is Decker, and then there is this sack face, you know. And it's kind of like, okay, which one's the real? person here Mm -hmm. you know what's the mask you know is decker the mask is the sack the mask yeah uh but he has he has embraced that duality of himself now there are there are times where that comes into conflict where Mm -hmm. that urge and that that's because it's a it's also a very sexual drive like this he talks about like when he is doing this stuff he is fully erect it's a murder it. hard on though yes. it's not a yeah. sex hard yeah. on yeah 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 exactly yeah <laughs> that description slays me it's <laughs> the fucking best <laughs> like that's peak barker right you know yeah. it's mm-hmm. it's not just enough for someone to like metaphorically get off on killing people no he is going to have a full-on murder boner like that mm-hmm. is that is what you're going to get with a clive barker villain fucking amazing and yeah for the most part he embraces that you know he, he there is concern that like you know the the decker side is more careful and and mm-hmm. wants to like make this more sustainable than his his sack face persona necessarily does um but yeah for the most part they kind of live in harmony right to just really horrible ends yeah yeah one of the things that i like that i also simultaneously struggle with is how it starts off as a boon versus decker story and then it transforms into a nightbreed versus eagerman eigerman story and I think it depends on which story you're more interested in, or if you like both of them, that's where the book success lies. So for me, I kind of prefer a bit more of that mystery as opposed to the latter part of it. 
And I could kind of see them, though, uh, being all part of the same conversation, just kind of mm -hmm. on a micro and a macro level, you know, right. where with Boone and with Decker, it's kind of that the other versus the kind of the quote unquote normal, you know, with right. the acknowledgement that the normal has all kinds of skeletons in its closet. Um, and yeah. I think you see that between there's the others in Nightbreed and then there's the quote unquote normal with these cops. Uh, and you, mm -hmm. you find out very quickly, like Eagerman, you know, he, he has his best thoughts when he's on the toilet and he likes oh to God. look at like doodles and cartoons of sodomy. But he, mm -hmm. you know, and and he brings along Ashbury, the priest, who's very reluctant. But again, he is kind of in the the quote unquote normal category, except his secret is that he secretly likes cross dressing. Right. So it's it's always that I think there's a other the people who've embraced the things that make them different versus the people who desperately want to be normal, but all have things that are just like, eh, you could be in this camp as well if if mm -hmm. you wanted to take a good hard look at yourself. Well, and it's the people who want to live their true, authentic mm -hmm. lives, right? Like Boone doesn't just want to go to Midian. He wants to go to Midian and live among the Nightbreed. He wants to be Nightbreed, whereas Eagerman is happy to leave the facet of himself that enjoys looking and thinking about sodomy in the bathroom stall and then mm -hmm. he presents outward facing as normal and the same with the priest right so i think there's acceptable levels of social deviancy quote unquote and then there's the like oh no you've stepped outside of what society deems normal and now we have to shoot you yeah keep it uh keep it in the bedroom and not like in our like say public bathrooms and schools right exactly which is so depressing on how relevant this crap still is Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Like <laughs> a full nearly 40 years later. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's so depressing. <laughs> but then, of course, we also have Lori, who I would argue doesn't straddle any of this. And in some ways, that makes her the most easy to get on board with character because we implicitly understand her motivations right from the jump and also simultaneously makes her the least interesting character in the entire book. I still think there's there's a bit of conflict in her between okay. what she sees as because there's this this passage about how she's got this very like wholesome girl next door look. Mm -hmm. She's got this very sweet look and she doesn't feel sweet. Right. You know, I, I don't think they come out and say it, but I think the the implication is that like she especially when she's with Boone, she's got these deep carnal desires, man. Like she oh, yeah. wants to get some of that D. And yes. I think there is a the virgin whore dynamic where, mm -hmm. you know, Lori is seen as this sweet person, but that feels like something she needs to maintain. But it's also uncomfortable because that's not how she feels, at least all the time. Yeah. And they also have a very bad sex life until Boone is dead. And then the sex is off the charts. Amazing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. No, that their their reunion scene where she and Whoa. Narcisse rescue him in the jail cell and it just turns into like a few pages of smut mm -hmm. is just it's it's glorious man like i love the yeah. it's this idea of them embracing their otherness and uh -huh. their sexuality in this scene of just like carnal empowerment like i love that it's unapologetic and mm -hmm. just yeah, you're you're right. I've actually seen a couple of reviews where 
people said the sexuality in that specific scene it's only a couple of pages but it makes people uncomfortable and of course you and i are standing up and cheering because it's quintessential clive barker (laughs) but it also feels honestly like the most sexual we've maybe ever seen him write and it's the most like consensually romantic (laughs) it's the most romantic and consensually sexual like most of the time he is introducing sexuality into a scenario that really doesn't like yes warrant it for Mm -hmm. like like it is one person doesn't want it one person is really conflicted about it it's Mm -hmm. in a uh it's in a sequence where all this other like really fucked up shit is going on and you could often violent yeah yes you could argue that something similar is happening here because it's in the middle of this jailbreak where these cops are getting like the shit beat out of them Uh uh-huh but the fact that like they are able to in that moment like find themselves and enjoy each other mutually Mm -hmm. and consensually before kind of going on to, to to take on this this final stand, I think was a really great moment, and it's one that uh, I'll just say I, I think is a little bit lacking in the movie when we, when oh, we get uh, to talk about that. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, the book, as I said, doesn't have a ton of explicit sexuality, like not in the same way that we become accustomed to, but it does have that through line. And then there's this passage. And then I would argue the other very confronting scene is when Boone finally meets Baphomet and gets a big heart on and just like comes on the god's face. (laughs) Yeah, that's um... It's like I'm having a religious experience. You you introduced me to uh, this this pretty interesting article about some of the themes in Cabal written by Simon McNeil, and that was a passage that that he actually brings up uh, and, and, and highlights. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, the uh, I want to read the quote because it is like this is this is Peak Barker, right? Baphomet's head it turned to him, vast and white, its symmetry fabulous. His entire body rose to it, gaze, spittle, and prick. His congealed blood liquefied like a saint's relic and began to run. His testicles tightened. Sperm ran up his cock. He ejaculated into the flame. Pearls of semen carried up past his eyes to touch the baptizer's face. Just, like is, is there any wow. more of a Clive Barker passage than him poetically describing a guy giving a god a facial? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> it is wild. And, and yet... It feels like it's airing on the right side of smut. Like, I don't want to give this book to my mom because I'm afraid of what she'll think of me. But at the same time, when I read that passage, when I read the sex scene between Laurie and Boone, it was just like, yeah, fuck yeah, Clive Barker. You you do this. You confront me with this because it is confronting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I heard someone use a phrase recently. They said, like, I'm embarrassed, but I'm not ashamed. Like, if right. someone stumbled on on this book and, it, like, I was like, I really like this book. And they read it, like, it might be like, even this? Mm-hmm. It might be a little bit, like, I might blush a little bit, but yes. I'm not going to, like, feel like I need to, like, crawl into a into a hole and die. Yeah, know? I'm not going to apologize for this <laughs> yeah, because yeah. I think it's incredibly well written and mm-hmm. very evocative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and again, the, the, the inclusion of Baphomet is again, like he is quintessential duality and dichotomy, right. you know, above as below, you know, there's um, elements of, of both genders, you know, uh, with, mm-hmm. with Baphomet and, and it's also, you know, 
dipping into some of that cosmic horror that Barker likes to touch on where, you know, in the book he is, you know, you, you almost can't look at him because yeah. he will consume you unless you are strong enough or, you know, someone like Boone slash Cabal who can like take that on. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. I can't remember if it was in relation to the book or the movie or both, but I did come across a quote from Barker where he said, yeah, there's parts of Raiders of the Lost Ark Indiana Jones in some of this. <laughs> and you can kind of see it, right? Like to gaze upon Baphomet is to potentially look into the Ark of the Covenant and risk having your face melt off. Mm -hmm. uh, as Ashbury will unfortunately learn. I mean, we lose <laughs> we lose Boone given Baphomet a facial, but I would argue that Ashbury gets it in the film. Yeah, yeah, no, he he takes it right in the face. <laughs> uh, who doesn't like a melty facial? Um, well, since we we've, we've been bringing up the film a little bit, why don't we shift over and talk about Nightbreed from 1990? So, Mr. Brian, this is another super speedy film adaptation yeah yeah the novella came out in 88 we've got nightbreed in, in 90 so you know that's at most two years if not less mm -hmm. than uh less between than, yeah you know between when when one another comes out uh it's interesting because this seemed like not necessarily that he was writing this to be a movie mm -mm. but i understand like as soon as he wrote it he was like oh this would make a great movie Right. And his initial thought was, oh, this is I can see this being a trilogy. Like, I think this mm -hmm. was going to be like, I think when he was really concocting this as as, you know, a potential trilogy, like you almost get the idea that he wanted this to be his magnum opus. Like this mm -hmm. was for for as much as we love Hellraiser and for as much as that has caught on with the mainstream. I really think Barker was hoping that like that was just going to be like his his appetizer for what he wanted Nightbreed to be. And and mm -hmm. unfortunately it just didn't it didn't get there. Yeah. Not to say that, that Nightbreed doesn't work as a movie, but it just didn't I don't think capture people's imagination quite the same way that let him continue with the story in, in multiple movies. Well it's wild when you start to look at how he talks about the film. Like there's the pre release and then there's the post release and he's not happy with the way that this film was cut because that's why we have a theatrical cut and a director's cut the version of the film that was put out into theaters he was not happy with the editor was apparently so unhappy with it that he ended up taking his name off of the film or like basically walking away from it mm -hmm. so it had a lot of studio tampering, but when you read Barker before the film comes out, he's talking about how he thinks this has mass appeal. You know, we haven't had a proper monster movie in forever. I'm putting 50 monsters on screen. It looks great. This is going to have huge appeal to horror fans. And then they start to cut the trailer and then they release it. And it's like they didn't, they didn't know what to do with it, so they wanted to pretend that this was another Hellraiser where we could just market it as a slasher. And then, of course, the movie performs really badly because in some ways, I don't think Barker understands how niche and cult appeal this title is. Like even mm -hmm. reading the book, I'm like, yeah, it's about monsters, but it's about 
sentimental monsters who don't fit in and it's edging into philosophy at points it's about a relationship gone wrong like there's a lot more going on here than a straightforward ooh we try to go blow up monsters in a cemetery and i think that we as fans sometimes even forget just how niche even hellraiser is like mm -hmm. yeah it it caught on and i think it caught on with the mainstream uh, in a way that like very few of Barker's work did, but it never came close to reaching the heights of like a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street or a Halloween or things where people would come in in droves, even if they weren't self-proclaimed horror fans. You know, I think there are times, uh, Joe, that you and I both kind of, I think we can kind of get into that horror bubble mm -hmm. where it's just like the people in the tribe, like, yeah, we all, you know, pray at the, the altar of Barker, but right. you know, that is, very difficult of a sell to get beyond people who are already into this kind of stuff. You know, he, he got a really, I think, good taste of that with Hellraiser. And I, and I have to wonder to what degree he was frustrated with not being able to find that again with subsequent movies. Mm hmm. Well, and the other important thing to note is that, of course, Hellraiser was, yes, incredibly popular, but it's also by virtue of comparison with its budget, right? Mm -hmm. Like Hellraiser is a one to two million dollar budgeted film, whereas Nightbreed is 11 million. And 11 mm -hmm. isn't huge when you think of it in the grand scheme, but this is 1990 dollars. I think the studio expected he was going to be able to deliver a bigger hit, mm -hmm. considering that they had upped the budget so much and like it doesn't do well but it's not a colossal flop but like i think i made a little bit of money back i mean yeah it, it depends on if you're like you know i'm sure the marketing would have tacked onto what the budget was but if i remember correctly i think it made like 15 60 million dollars off of the 11 million dollar budget so it, yeah it made a little bit of money back but i don't but know i enough. just yeah i just think it's one of those things where barker got so kind of hot mm -hmm. in the middle of the late 80s however you want it 87 with hellraiser he made this big splash but people were forgetting that like you said it's relative to like that did not cost a lot of money to make so whatever mm -hmm. they were making back was just you know all profit yes trying to leverage barker's style into something that can hit whatever the studio was was expecting a make on this i think was kind of a fool's errand and one that mm -hmm. i think they immediately realized the trap they were in where they didn't know how to market it yeah it's bizarre too because i would argue that this is his most challenging directorial film right like we've talked about hellraiser and how much we love it We've also talked about Lord of Illusions, and I would argue that this falls more in line with Lord of Illusions in terms of we thought we could sell it on his name. It's got a bigger budget. Ironically enough, apparently both films had a budget of around 11 million, mm -hmm. but even Lord of Illusions, I would argue, was an easier sell than this film. Like, this doesn't come in a ready-made package that you can just be like, yeah, it's a monster movie. Yeah, it's a slasher. Like, there's too much going on here. And they definitely dropped the ball. But then even when you look at the finished film, I think everything that we talked about where the novella is telling a good standalone story, when you look at the film, something about visualizing it for the screen makes this film, to me, feel like, we're missing chunks of the story. We need more 
Barker's poetic language can't save it in the same way that his direction, I, I think he actually does a lot of the action okay, but every time I finish this film, to me, it doesn't feel completely satisfying because it feels like there's other things that we're not fully getting from it. And it's also that, that discussion we've had about to what degree is it possible to translate his prose to a visual medium mm -hmm. and the things that your imagination can do with his words when he's describing what these monsters can do and what their underground city is like and what Baphomet mm -hmm. is like when you see this on screen, like he had more of a budget. So yeah. these, these are good effects. Like I, mm -hmm. I, I really did like the creature design. I like the makeup effects. I didn't remember the first time I saw Nightbreed, I actually forgot that they included Baphomet. I know, right? And so when I'm reading Cabal, I'm like, oh, I wonder if they just ditched that because they knew they weren't going to be able to like pull that off. Mm -hmm. And then watching it again, I'm like, actually, they do a pretty good job, but pretty good job and, and decent when compared to just like the way your imagination can absolutely run wild. And, mm -hmm. and he... I think he does a good job at giving enough description and leaving enough kind of blanks for your brain to fill it in with whatever you want it to. Yeah. You inherently can't do that in a movie. You are no. given a fully realized version of these monsters that is limited by what you can do with living in the real world. Yeah. Makeup, prosthetics, yeah. effects, and so yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and at this point, you know, visual effects are limited. You know, CGI is not really going to work. And, you know, even even today, there's a degree to which CGI isn't going to relate those things in a way that's fully satisfying. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just I, I have that same thing as you where it's like I, I like what they are trying to do and what Barker is trying to do in the film adaptation. But, like, I just think there are certain things that – through no fault of their own, you just can't. Like, it just doesn't translate to a movie the way it does in a book. Yeah. Yeah, like, I was surprised, because I, I had seen this movie before. This is, I think, my third time seeing it. And this is the first time I was reading the novella. So when we get to the description of a character like Peliquin, which is the nightbreed that bites Boone before he is shot to death by the police and allows him to be resurrected as a nightbreed, the character is described as having an almost smoky head where you can see through it it's unformed it's constantly shifting and so yeah. on and then you see this character realize on the screen because of course as you said we don't have the fx budget for that in 1990 so this character is red and has dreadlocks and can morph and develop teeth and sort of like become more monstrous in the same way that boone will eventually become where he gets uh almost maori figures on his face and so on and it's an okay transformation but it's nothing like what i imagine the character is like in the book because you just can't do that on screen at this point in time yeah it's not as drastic but it's a similar letdown as you know what you hear described for rawhead rex and what winds up mm -hmm. on the screen exactly this isn't nearly that bad uh in terms no. of like you know it doesn't just look like you know a, a guy in a bad rubber mask but yeah. it's still there are limitations to what you can do and yeah that yeah. that kind of that shifty smoky feel is is so compelling when you read about it and and, and boone has a, i think a similar thing mm-hmm I think that might be one of the things that 
a lot of the creatures in Midian share is that like they their transformation takes place under the guise of like this kind of like smoky yes demeanor or illusion mm-hmm. um and that was the other interesting thing because i don't think he goes through too much trouble to describe too many individual monsters or, or members mm-hmm. of the Nightbreed. but in the movie you can tell he's really trying to like give like visual personality to each and every one of them right but i think that for as interesting as that is visually it it almost backfires because it's it's drawing attention to the night breed in a way that like the book wasn't really meant to uh mm. you know this is that area where it's like he's he's trying to again make a movie that it's going to want to draw in audiences and right. so the the things he's doing in his designs for the Nightbreed are probably, you know, he, he saw the success he had with the Cenobites and the way that captured people's mm-hmm. imagination. He wanted to do that here. And it just didn't have the same success. And he, he might have almost been trying to go too big with it. The success about, I think, Hellraiser is that it, it hints at bigger worlds and bigger things. But for the most part, it's it stays a very small story and it's, it stays on, you know, these three or four Cenobites. And especially if people are, you know, with, with the mismarketing of people are coming into this thinking it's going to be like, you know, just a fight between, you know, Boone and, and Decker's kind of sack face serial killer. Mm-hmm. If people are expecting that, and then they're just like wandering around this underground city with like this this big fat guy with his head that's on his stomach, yeah. or like this guy who has tentacles that comes out of his chest and like curves around, like it's mm-hmm. it's it is. Uh, I I respect the ambition, but yeah. it it just it was never going to connect with audiences the way I think they were hoping it was going to. Yeah. You can tell that Barker is enamored with what he can show visually, like now that he is forced to concretize exactly what the Nightbreed will look like, he goes buck wild with it, right? He takes that $11 million budget and just goes for Mm -hmm. it. But you're right, you know, there's an entire sequence where Anne Bobby as Laurie is wandering around Midian and it's so vast and epic in scope you know we've got these ladder walkways we've got a whole underground cavern for baphomet and probably about 50 different creature designs and they're all a little bit unique but it's also kind of overwhelming to the point where it doesn't feel like it's in service of the story or the character it's almost more show and tell look at what we can do with the makeup and Mm -hmm. while it does look impressive it also feels like it's not quite in service of what Barker is trying to do anymore. Yeah. And it, and it kind of takes away your agency to kind of imagine this world. Like I'm, I'm interested to find out like when you, when you read a book, Joe, and, and you're mm-hmm. reading like descriptions, do you kind of fully form the world that you're reading about? Like, do you have a clear picture about like the totality of it? Mm. Or are you closer to me where it's like, like my brain will kind of do these rough doodles almost of just like little bits and scenes where Mm. it's just like, it's this, this sequence of imagery that'll kind of flash in my head as I'm reading about this, as opposed to like something that fully comes together and like all of the connective tissue is, is, is fully kind of put together. How, How does your imagination work when you're reading a book like this? 
I think over time I've developed it more cinematically just because I've got the visual language from so many films that I've consumed. So I do end up presenting it in my mind almost like a film. So there were moments where, or or scenes where I could see, okay, what would this look like if we filmed it, if we tried to capture it? And that does often end up conflicting with what an actual filmed version looks like, because of course, no one else is seeing it the same way as I'm seeing it. Which is funny, because I think we're getting to the same point by different roads. Mm-hmm. Which is funny for as much as I I love movies and grew up on movies, when I'm reading, I don't necessarily see things cinematically. Okay. So I don't necessarily have all this stuff like fully like framed or like like my mind hasn't done the full production design for this. Um, But it gives me these like really fun little flashes of what the characters are seeing in a way that is like is kind of really enticing for me and I really like. Uh, and so for me, when I do see it fully thought out, it's always a little bit underwhelming because it's like somehow turning it into a reality mm-hmm. like lessens it. And so seeing it fully fleshed out on screen, like instead of like these dark caverns where it's like I'm maybe just seeing like the flashes of like the steps that lead down to Baphomet's lair it's oh no this is just an underground world with like a lot of drawbridges and like detritus and actually it kind of vaguely looks like the the monster world from little monsters so I think that's taking me out of it a little bit Mm -hmm. um uh so yeah there is just uh, something about fully forming it through someone else's lens because someone else has designed this uh, that will always just kind of like take a little bit of the mystery and the magic out of it for me. Mm -hmm. Especially with something like Barker's work where what I love about it is the way your imagination will run run wild. Yeah, this is interesting because I've had similar conversations on my YA podcast because we're often looking at adaptations and I'll confess one of the ways to get around this, ironically enough, is to not always begin with the book. Mm. Because that's usually when the film ends up or the TV show ends up paling in comparison because you already had a bit of a preconceived notion based on either your your doodle sketches or your fully cinematically realized vision. So going into the film often ends up making it feel like, oh, well, this is different than the book. This doesn't look the way I expected. Oh, this is going out of order compared to something else. And I found the couple of times where I've watched the movie first and then gone and read the book, I'm appreciative of how the book tends to flesh things out or leave them more open-ended, open-minded even. But I'm less resistant to the changes that you have to make for a visual medium that's that is a really interesting point and like i guess really leads to that trope like doing it in that order if you read the book and then see the movie you know how often do you read people saying the book was better and oh and you know how much of that is inherently that the book or the the movie was better versus how much of that is the movie did not live up to what the person had imagined in their head from the book Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think also, if people really like a book, and then they hear it's being adapted, they want that experience that they had with the book. But Mm. the reality is, is that film and television is completely different. Like you can't do visually what you can do in a book for the exact same reasons you just explained with Barker, like you cannot capture that prose visually. 
at least not in the same facet, not in the same way, right? So part of this is that you have to accept that it will never be the same. <laughs> and the question is, does that make it worse? And the answer isn't always yes. It's just that we are, I think, predispositioned to believe so. Which this is so hilarious when I consider this entire podcast is based off of us setting ourselves up for that exact failure mm -hmm. by reading a bunch of, of Hellraiser related books and comic books to lead up to the remake last year to see mm -hmm. if we would possibly like this movie when, you know, with through that lens, all we're doing is setting ourselves up for the failure of it wasn't what we wanted. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I will say like, so I had seen this film before I read the novella and I found that it did change the way I processed it because I was able to fill in visually some of the gaps, but then also highlight things like, oh, Peliquin looks completely different in the book compared to how I already know he's going to be captured physically for the film. And it also... You know, when I was struggling with certain narrative things like, oh, there's so much cyclical nature to the novella, I already kind of anticipated it because I had seen the film, but I found it more exacerbating in the book because it happens more often. Mm. <sighs> is, is this a point where I, I should maybe look to make a kind of possibly sacrilegious confession? <laughs> if you like, yes. I don't really like David Cronenberg as Decker. Okay, so I saw this in our notes for our shared document, and I'm not going to say it's sacrilegious, but I do need you to elaborate. So, I think what works really well for me about Decker in Cabal, in the novella, mm -hmm. is that he is introduced as this very sturdy, stable, safe place. He's even described as physically being like this kind of big hulking guy. Mm -hmm. And I picture him as like very straight laced, very straightforward. And I think like part of the the way in which Boone gets the rug pulled out from under him is discovering that mm. Decker is actually this horrible guy that has been manipulating him this whole time. Yeah. And it's impossible in the film because David Cronenberg is playing this character like mustache twirling. So villain. creepy. He is immediately yeah. like, oh, bad guy. And like, yes, I know I'm I'm looking at this knowing like, you know, even before I saw Nightbreed for the first time, I had known like David Cronenberg plays him. He is known mm -hmm. for being the, the guy with the sack on his head and, and being like a creepy killer. But yeah. I don't think I would have needed that hindsight to know that as soon as you see Cronenberg, like, oh, this guy's fucking creepy. And uh -huh. there is something sinister going on here. And so, like, he – yeah, I think there was something about the, the mustache-twirling nature about how he played him. Mm -hmm. I don't think that dual nature of him where there's one part of him that's very straight-laced, very put together, still kind of evil and manipulative, mm -hmm. um, but – still has a very big difference between him and like the, the alter ego that he gets when he puts the sack on uh, right. here. I think there's, they're a lot more enmeshed and like him putting the mask on is just putting the mask on. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't really mark a shift or a difference in personality. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw in the other part of your notes that you said there, there seems to be less duality in this character. Like they are just kind of one in the same and reading the novella and realizing that they are almost distinct personalities you know the mask has a voice that seems to be in conversation with decker was a really interesting novel twist and part of me wondered you know why did barker remove that i think 
because he probably thought it would play a little silly on a film. And yet I would have liked to have seen that sort of interrogation of duality, you know, like give the mask a voice, let's see it be creepy. But yeah, I do think you would have to pull Cronenberg back a little bit because he is going whole ham into this (laughs) villainous character. I'll confess that I really like it because I am used to seeing Cronenberg as a sort of sterile doctor type character Mm. so this felt like he was letting loose a little bit in some ways you know he was giving you what you expect of a Cronenberg performance but he was also having more fun playing this really unhinged killer and that might also just be really you know an example of that had I seen them and I've seen the movie first like I saw the movie a few years ago before reading Mm -hmm. this but it had been so long that honestly at this point it was like reading the book first and reading seeing the movie again for the first time right and so I think it it very well might have been just suffering again from that you know this is what I had imagined and what I had built up in my mind from the book and then when that was not the way it was portrayed in the movie it just suffered by comparison Mm hmm. I think partially, I'm also often more distracted by Craig Sheffer's performance as Boone. It was interesting to read the book and realize that he is much more certain of himself. You know, he doesn't quite know who he is as a person, but he is very clear about his motivations and his goals. Whereas I think in the film, Boone often comes off as not frail, but he just seems uncertain. He's easily manipulated to the point where he's a bit of a dumb himbo. And I can <laughs> understand how Decker has been able to negotiate him into this position. Uh, and I think there's a couple things going there. I think that when you have an actor that is as beautiful as Craig Sheffer, you almost can't help but maybe think he's a little bit of a himbo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say my appreciation of the himbo status is elevated even further when we get to the director's cut because we're seeing both more of him and more sexy him nice nice well then i haven't seen the director's cut yet that does make me look forward to it even a little Mm -hmm. bit more yeah how do you feel about tidy whities there will be more to come all right well i mean that'll take me back because like i I remember back in the day when when tidy whities was the standard so Mm -hmm. uh yeah there'll be a nostalgia factor i think (laughs) um but yeah and i think it's also it's the being able to know where the conflict is coming from is just another kind of, I think, inherent advantage you have where you get to know what's going on in someone's mind right? by seeing it in the book. You know, trying to convey that on screen, I think, can be quite a challenge, you know, and mm-hmm. I love Craig Sheffer. He, he might not be someone who's going to be like up for an Academy Award for anything. So like, you know, maybe he wasn't quite up to that task. So that that inner conflict from the book just reads as confusion on the screen or or gullibility on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, it's best leading performance by a piece of attractive wood. <laughs> I say that only slightly meanly, but the reality is, is it's interesting to have watched this so soon, but also after Lord of Illusions, because I feel like we can very clearly see the genesis of how Scott Bakula is shot by Barker in that mm. movie, where this was the trial run with Shepard, only Shepard doesn't have quite the same range as an actor, whereas I think Bakula is far more charismatic and knows how to lean into that leading man himbo status a little bit better. But 
I think in both texts, it's very much Barker is enamored with his leading man. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's funny, too, because as soon as you mentioned Bacula, I'm thinking he probably would have been better suited to convey that right. conflict and not have it come off as uh, gullibility. Mm-hmm. He would be able to kind of like register with his facial expressions the fact that he's grappling with whatever he sees is going on inside himself and people leveraging that as opposed to him just seeming like, you know, someone is leading like a golden retriever uh, mm-hmm. with, with a set of car keys or something like that. Yeah, like this performance to me is sort of on par with Dale Midkiff as uh, Louis Creed in Pet Cemetery, the mm. Mary Lambert version, mm. where it's like gorgeous men, <laughs> gorgeous men, and we'll leave it at that. Fair, fair. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder, Mr. Brian, since we're, we're running a little bit long mm. and we're going to be doing another mini-sode on the director's cut, do we want to save some of our other impressions for the film and we can do a bit of a compare and contrast yeah because i I also think it's going to be um before i kind of like give my full thoughts on how this work as a cinematic adaptation i'd kind of like to see a better representation of how barker Mm -hmm. would have envisioned it so yeah i I think we can uh we can save some of this on the back burner for when we incorporate the director's cut okay yeah I'm interested. So folks, when we come back, we're going to do a mini-sode on the director's cut, but just things to highlight some pretty significant differences, including the end of the film, which to me does make a very significant impact because it's what you leave the film thinking about. Like it, to me, a bad ending can dramatically alter what comes before it. A good ending can save a lot of things, and the ending of these two cuts are pretty I don't want to say drastically different, but like the director's cut is firmly in line with the novella and sets it up as, ooh, now we're going into epic scope, bring on the sequels. Whereas this feels a little bit like, wait, what? <laughs> Interesting. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I am. I am intrigued. Yeah. And also a musical number, because why not? Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Lori is a nightclub singer. Okay. I'm getting more and more excited to to see this through the the director's cut lens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, folks, this is your opportunity. We would love to hear from you about your thoughts on Cabal, or if you have seen the theatrical cut and you want to tell us about things that we missed or other things that catch your eye. So, uh, Mr. Brian, if they want to reach out to you directly, how would they do so? You can get me on Instagram at evil taylor hicks uh you can get me at blue sky also at evil taylor hicks i forget what the the rest of their usernames are but you can figure it out yeah (laughs) (laughs) but either way the the main part of the handle is evil taylor hicks uh forget if we mentioned this during the last episode i am no longer on twitter uh gave it gave it a solid decade run uh but yeah it was time to move on so instagram and blue sky that's where you can find me Sounds good. And I could be reached at B Snow on my remote, and that's the letter B. And we will thank the Anatomy of a Screen Pod Squad for hosting the show. So not much of a tease since I literally just spent two minutes 
anticipating it, but we will be back with a mini-sode to talk about that director's cut. And then, uh, yeah, we, we've had a couple of people reach out and be like, hey, are you going to read the Midian and other stories? Are you going to think about the comics? And the answer is yes, but we'd love to continue hearing your recommendations. So do hit us up on socials and we'll begin plotting future episodes. More Nightbreed to come. Yeah, we're sticking around in Midian for a while. So uh, if anybody has any uh, has any sites they want us to see, mm. hit us up. We'll, we'll check them out. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Squad.